from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. If you've been feeling deprived of football as we approach Halloween, it would certainly be warranted, considering the Gators will have played only one game in the last 27 days at the time of Saturday's kickoff in Jacksonville. So to help fill that gridiron gap, we've got a supersized show for you today, featuring running back Jordan Scarlett, defensive line coach Chris Rumpf, the voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert, and FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, all of whom will be getting you ready for Florida, Georgia. So without further ado, let's get it started with Florida's explosive sophomore running back. We sat down with Jordan Scarlett to find out more about what makes the soft-spoken playmaker tick, but we started our conversation by getting the lowdown on what the Gators focused on during the bye week. Uh, I think the focus is just taking care of it now, and we were just going through practice and just making sure everybody was staying healthy, staying conditioned, and just doing things right. Do you try and get out of football mode during that time? Like on Saturday, were you watching games, or do you need to step away from it during that time? Oh, no, we were watching games. I know for me, I can speak for myself, but I was watching games, and I watched LSU games because I know we got LSU coming up in Arkansas, so we're just watching other opponents. I want to go back to the beginning for you. Can you talk about where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Broward County, Florida. Uh, I played for Ten Rack Cougars, and I had older brothers who played for higher pounds, but I was always a star out there at the park, and I always had good games out there. And then I eventually went to university school. It was a private school, and I played football there for a while. I did a pretty good job there. We had a state championship run, and that was my sophomore year. I think I ran for about 1,000. 300 yards that year, 22 touchdowns, something like that. And after that, we had a pretty good junior year. And then senior year, I went to St. Thomas, and things just blew up because it was a bigger platform, 7A football. So a lot more people knew about it. And then uh, I was committed to Miami. And then, then I, after make Coach Mack and make Coach Skip, I decided to come to Florida, and then it's been a great experience so far. You've talked about how Florida wasn't even on your radar up until Coach Mack came in. What changed for you? when he came in and started talking to you? I just felt like I didn't know about him at first when I first met him, but then I started looking up stuff. People told me he was a coach at Alabama and stuff, So, and he dealt with good running backs and the type of offense he was trying to run. So I was all bought into the scheme, and I liked what he was doing. Then I met Coach Skip. He was a great guy, uh, someone I could really relate to, not really as like a coach, but like just somebody I could always talk to. So meeting Coach Skip was a good part of it too. How tough was it to adjust to the idea of being a Gator when that hadn't really crossed your mind before? Uh, it was pretty tough because I didn't know anything about it. I just knew Quincy was there, and Quincy was always telling me to come, but I was like, uh, the coaches weren't showing me interest. But then I, I, I bought into it when I met Coach Mack, and it was a pretty good deal when I came with parents saw the school. Tell us a little about your family and uh, just your background outside of football. I was raised by my mom mostly, and my dad and them separated when I was about five years old, I think. So, yeah, raised with my mom, and then she was with my grandma. I'll be around a lot, and my grandfather. We are always around football, going to the park Saturdays. That's what we look forward to the most. Uh, around the time I had to wake up the earliest because I was in, like, Little League football. I, mean, I was, like, peewees, I think. Mm-hmm. So I'll be up around 7 o'clock. <laughs> so 
we'll always all go out to the park for my game, and we got to be back later for my brothers and everything. So around that time, it was fun. But my grandfather passed when I was in, like, I think I was about 12 years old. And after that, he's always come to the game. So after that, my cousins always used to try to make that motivate me, like do it for Pops, you know, because, you know, he'll always be out there for the game. So after that, i just been doing it for him. And I think we had a speaker come in. I'm not sure which speaker it was. I think I want to say it was Inky. I don't know. <laughs> One of them told us to uh, put a picture up in our locker, mm-hmm. uh, something that motivates you, like do it for your wife. I always used to think about my pops. I pray for him. When I had it before the games and everything, like I'm doing it for you. And I just put the picture up in my locker. So every time when I'm feeling down, I just know he's watching me. So I got to do it for him. And you still do that today before every game, everywhere you go? Yeah, definitely. Now you mentioned your brothers and your sisters as well. What about the rest of your family and how did they influence you? Uh, my little brothers, I kind of got to do it for them too because, you know, I got to show them the way to do it. My older brother kind of did it, but he – he didn't want to do football anymore. He wouldn't want to risk his injury. So kind of just passed it to me, and I've just been doing it ever since. You've talked a lot about your Jamaican heritage and on social media talk about it. How has that influenced you? Uh, definitely have to have some pride, you know, because I know a lot of Jamaican athletes who take a lot of pride in what they do and Jamaican people in general who just take pride in what they do, whether it's schoolwork and stuff like that. So, And I know my parents will want me to represent it well, so that's what I do. Would it be a reach to say you're a big Usain Bolt fan? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, that, was that a big deal over the summer when he was able to, to set that record? Yeah, it definitely was. And all his other past records, uh, it just puts a smile on my whole family's face. And we're just trying to do the same thing with me. You done any sprinting in your time as well or no? <laughs> uh, no, I used to run track, but you know, I hung that up when I left high school. Playing at St. Thomas Aquinas, how did that help you get ready for playing big-time college football like this? Uh, definitely from, like, practicing and all that stuff and how they ran their program. It got me ready for college football as far as, like, how everything was structured. And then they had, like, big-time dudes that left out of St. Thomas, so they knew the ropes. They always came back and gave us advice. So I think just playing that kind of football helped me out. When you're so used to being the star and being the main guy, and then you come in and you're not getting a chance to play all the time and you're buried on the depth chart, how did you adjust that? How did you overcome some of that adversity your freshman year? Uh, I just kept pushing myself every day. You know, it was tough going out there. You know, sometimes you'll compete just as good as the other guy or better, but it's their time at the moment. So I just had to swallow that one and take it to the face. It It was a humbling experience. I think I needed it overall to make me fight more. Sometimes I'll just go out there like, man, it's whatever. But now I, I got to go out there with a the fast tempo every day because there's great guys out there on the field every day trying to come for your job. And what do you think that you've been able to do this year to really improve yourself and get more to the top of the depth chart? I think not taking any plays off in practice because sometimes people want to do that just being a human being. But just going your all every practice and just focusing on the play, like just trying to have no errors at all and just do the best you can do. Off the field, what do you like to do outside of football? I'll say just hang out with my friends. We play video games, Madden, <laughs> FIFA sometimes. Just playing video games or I just go hang out with the family, play like board games and stuff like that. When you're playing Madden, what team do you play as? Uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, why, why Pittsburgh? I like Le'Veon Bell. Okay. <laughs> So I guess that, that leads in what I was going to ask you about other running backs that you model yourself after. Other than Le'Veon Bell, who else do you look at and say, I want to be like that guy? Uh, Marshawn Lynch, I like the way he runs. And LeGarrette Blunt, they all run physical and just try not to get tackled by anybody. So I just like the way they run the ball. 
In terms of players you've had experience with here, who's had the biggest impact on you personally? Uh, I'll say Kelvin Taylor. Uh, I was just hanging out with him last year, him going through his whole combine process and through the season. He just uh, prepared me for a lot of what's going to happen in my future. So I thank him for that. And, he, and when I first got here, too, he showed me the ropes of what's going on and just how, the, how everything was going to go. So I was already ready for it. You've got a freshman in your stable in LaMichael P. Ryan. How do you prepare a freshman for Florida, Georgia and the uniqueness of that environment? Uh, I think I just take the same thing Kevin did to me last year. You know, he just made me get hyped up for it. You know, he he didn't even think I was going to play because around that time I wasn't playing that much. So he was just getting me in, come ready up, like, y'all got to come on. Like, I need y'all this game. So I think I'm just, you know, getting Michael Crockett ready for it. He's a good guy, so I think he's going to go in there pumped anyways. <laughs> How do you describe playing in that environment? 50-50 split. Not a lot of games like that around the country. What is it like relative to a road game or a home game? I told him it's going to be real crazy. I'm like, you're going to see the stadium and it's going to look beautiful and it's going to be real loud. Like, I just told him to get ready. Just have his mind right. Just be focused on the play. Sometimes I'll get caught up in the whole crowd thing. You had such a big game against Georgia last year. How much does that bleed over into this year? Does that have an impact on your ability to go out there and, and have another good day? Oh, yeah, definitely. It uh, puts a little pressure, but sometimes, you know, I like pressure. You know, it makes you focus a little harder. So I definitely want to go out there and have a good game. What are going to be the keys to having that good game against Georgia? What have you guys been focusing on in practice? Uh, you know, just knowing our opponent, for one. We're just going to have to make sure our offensive linemen get the right landmarks. And, you know, I'm just going to make them, I'm making my reads off them, you know, and I put my trust in them 100%. Given the big gaps throughout the month of October, it's easy to lose sight of where the Gators are in the big picture. At 5-1 and one and just outside the top 10 in the national polls, Florida controls its own destiny in the SEC race and arguably for the college football playoff as well. We asked Mick Hubert for his thoughts on Florida, Georgia, and the season on the whole so far, and he appropriately noted what a strange year it's been. Well, Adam, it's really been a disjointed season for sure. It's, uh, you know, you talk about baseball being a game that's played every day to get rhythm. Well, football, you don't play every day, but you're in a, you're in a weekly rhythm, a Saturday rhythm, and we haven't really established that. So from that standpoint, unique to this sport, it doesn't feel like uh, we've been on a, on a weekly uh, rhythm whatsoever uh, as we've approached, uh, you know, six games in. We still have uh, the last five to go in this another shortened season. Uh, we'll play 11 games for the second time in three years. We've had a game cut short. So these last five games are critically important. They're all big ones uh, ahead for the Gators and how this season is going to shape out. Uh, right now, I think the Gators, uh, I would say the Gators are a little bit under the radar at 5-1, and one, because when you talk in terms of the national picture, Florida is not mentioned at all, not really mentioned that much in terms of SEC teams that could contend for that situation. Uh, I don't know if that's because they haven't been in a weekly rhythm or if uh, the national people are saying, if we're going to talk about you, it'll be because you earned your way in it because you've got these last five games to play. Mm -hmm. And that clearly will be the case. If the Gators are in this position a month from now, it's because they've got some very big wins under their belt. Uh, so I, I'd say we're a little under the radar. And yet when you look at the polls, uh, 12th in one poll, I think 14th in the other. So you can't really say they've been mm -hmm. uh, under the radar. It just kind of has that feel to it. And yet I think they're getting uh, pretty good due uh, in terms of being ranked in the top 15 in both the polls. So uh, it's been an interesting season, but we're just now 
in some ways, we're just now getting to the point in the year where it's always important. November is always the deciding month. Sure. And so the Gators have put themselves in a pretty decent position right now. Although, as we look at November, it's probably going to be the the most critical, most difficult November possibly in school history. And it is a unique position to be in because usually the story of the season is told over the course of three, three and a half months. There really isn't much of a story to tell at this point. It's almost entirely going to be decided by this final month. It's almost as if six games have happened, but there isn't really a narrative thread that carries through it. No, there really isn't. Uh, and again, part of that is because of having a game uh, lost due to the hurricane and getting rescheduled, uh, having a quarterback that was uh, uh, starting to get in, in a little bit of a rhythm and then, and then went out. Uh, against North Texas, and speaking of Luke Del Rio, missed a couple of three weeks there, and then uh, you know now he's going to come back. Uh, obviously, played the last time out and wasn't as sharp uh, for whatever the reason, uh, whether it was a, a mental thing or, or a physical thing. And, and uh, Jim McElwain has said he didn't get his feet set a lot, and I, I think that's true. Uh, in bouncing around in the pocket, he kind of drifted sometimes and has put himself in some bad positions. And yet, you also have to, in the back of your mind, have to wonder if was because of some of that maybe uh, due to the due to the knee a little bit, mm-hmm. trying to maybe subconsciously protect it. I, I don't know the answer to that. So uh, that's why this is a this is a big one for him to get out there and and play on Saturday. So I think that's also a part of uh, uh, why we we don't really know uh, where this offense is. I, I think what we do know is the fact that Antonio Callaway is every bit as good this year as he was last year and maybe a little bit better in terms of the perception of people around the country, what he's able to do. You know, when he returned that uh, that onside kick for a touchdown in the last game for 44 yards, he became just the fourth player in Florida football history to have a kickoff return for a touchdown and a punt return for a touchdown during his career. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that, probably the only one to do it in that fashion as well. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Lee McGriff t- uh, shared the story with me. The first player ever to do this w- was Harvin Clark back in 1969. Now you got to consider this. I know we're getting off the tangent a little bit, but that's kind of what we do on these podcasts. <laughs> that's the uh, point. Florida football starts in 1906. Well, you know, we go to 1969, and Harvin Clark runs a kickoff back for a touchdown in 1971. Two years later. Uh, in a game that they were trying to get John Reeves a record uh, in the game against Miami with the Florida flop, he catches a punt, and instead of maybe a fair catching it to give the Gator offense a chance to go on the field for Reeves to throw a couple more passes and set a record, Harvin Clark returns the punt for a touchdown. (laughs) And so he becomes the first player in Gator history to do that. So it starts in 1906. It's not until 1971 that a player ever had a kick return and a punt return in his career for a touchdown. It took 65 years to do it. Then it doesn't happen again until Brandon James does it in 06 and 08. And then DuBose does it, Andre DuBose does it over a course of four different seasons. He, he has the multiple kicks. So, right. so it doesn't happen hardly at all. Now it's happened three times in the last 10 years, uh, obviously with, with Clark being the first one to do it, and then second being uh, James, and then DuBose, and now here's Callaway. So uh, a long-winded answer, Callaway has proven to be as noteworthy as he was last year, and it all leads to this point that we found, I think, a second playmaker now in Tyree Cleveland, a highly recruited youngster that Houston really wanted. He was signed. He was ready to go play for the Cougars in his hometown, and the Gators get him at the last moment. He's proved to be a, a very valuable guy. I think maybe in the future, 
pitcher. Uh, a Josh Hamlet or a Freddie Swain could also add to that role. Um, Brandon Powell, I think, is a guy that still you can't to overlook because of what he can do uh, coming out of the slot. So I, I think that if the offensive line can just kind of get itself together a little bit and give Del Rio some time, I think he's got the ability to check other receivers and bring more people into the fold, and, and that will help the Gator pass attack. And I think uh, there's been no indication – uh, that they're going to stray from four running backs. Uh, you know, Coach McElwain said earlier this week that uh, we'll probably stay the same and, and try and give it to the guy who hit the hot hand in the fourth quarter. So I don't see any any separation there, although you like the way Jordan Scarlett has run and, and LaMichael Pirine has run very well. So I, I think this offense is, is kind of on the cusp of doing some things, yet you know, you're going to get the great challenge uh, in these last five games against some pretty, uh, pretty good defenses they're going to have to go against. So that's kind of where I think we're at offensively. Defensively, we, we know this team is very, very good. It's just got to get healthy, and that remains the X factor going into the game Saturday. How many of these guys play, and if they do get back and play, how close to being at, at top shelf? Obviously, McElwain is so we're not going to put guys out there that's not ready to go. Mm-hmm. But you just don't automatically just return from an injury and go out there and play like you didn't miss a beat. Occasionally it happens, but most of the time uh, you kind of got to play your way back into that rhythm a little bit. So that's why it's pretty exciting. I, I called the last game against Missouri kind of a reopening day because we hadn't played in a while, and now it's been two weeks, so I don't know how many opening days you can have in a season. <laughs> but it's going to be nice to get into a, a five-Saturday routine here pretty soon. There's so many unique storylines when you're looking at a Florida-Georgia game. One of the ones that's special to this year, the idea that Luke Del Rio is going back out there and playing in a field he spent much of his childhood goofing around on when his dad was coaching the Jags for all that time. And yet that field for Florida-Georgia always tends to just lead to strange events. It really makes the game so special. I mean, you know, you, you basically you, you have – you have Army-Navy being what it is, and you have Texas and Oklahoma and the Red River rivalry slash shootout, whatever they're calling it these days, with the split crowd there in, in Dallas. And now the 50-50 split here in Jacksonville, the same thing. So these are the handful of games that are like this. And it's got to be a great thrill for Luke Del Rio because he spent so much time in, in this ballpark where his dad was the coach you know, of the Jags for so many years there. And Obviously, he'll be juiced up. And if he can play a little bit like Kelvin Taylor played – because when he played there, knowing yeah. his dad, Fred starred in that at ballpark, level. he took his game to another level. Every time he seemed like he stepped on the field there, if Luke Del Rio can borrow a little bit of that, uh, that machismo, if you will, it'll, be, it'll bode well for Florida. And, and, and uh, you know, it's a, been an interesting week because Jack Del Rio's been in Florida the mm-hmm. entire week because his team from the West Coast, the Raiders, playing back-to-back Florida teams. So it's been very unique. And so hopefully, and, uh, and I believe his dad is, is planning on being at the game. So hopefully that Luke will, will play well in this game. When Will Muschamp was here, the storyline was Muschamp trying to beat his own alma mater, and now the storyline has shifted. Now you have McElwain versus Smart, two guys who coached together under Nick Saban. Yeah, that's interesting, and uh, you know they were they were as Jim McElwain said earlier this week, two guys who spent a lot of time in the room together for four years. I mean, one being a defensive coordinator, the other being an offensive coordinator, so they know each other very well. Their wives know each other very well. It's just it's just a tight knit group. So, you know that that will be a very interesting. Obviously, Coach McElwain be, 
became a head coach uh, a little bit ahead of Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart had opportunities to become a head coach and, and maybe was uh, hoping that this would be the job he would get being a Georgia alum. So, uh, you know, it's a critical game for Georgia. I mean, you know, they're sitting there at four and three. And obviously, with a first-year coach, it's kind of like a first-year quarterback, of which they have both. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a recipe for automatic success when you got a, a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach. I think any coach will tell you that after his fourth or fifth year. There's a lot of things I would have done differently in that first year if I could go back and do it. So, uh, if Georgia loses, they're four and four. If, if they win. Hey, Kirby Smart's got a victory of Florida in his first game, and he kind of salvaged a little bit of a, of a of a season. But but the thing about Georgia is, you know, you have to respect how close they are to being maybe six and one. I mean, you know. You know, that Vandy game comes down to maybe the best linebacker in the league and the best tackler in the league and making a great tackle on a fourth and one to stop Georgia and, and, and there. And then a, a crazy ending of the Tennessee game. Georgia easily could be 6-1 and one football team. So uh, it's, it's big for them, as I mentioned, but obviously it goes without saying how big it is for Florida because the Gators are in the driver's seat right now with a very bumpy road ahead. But they do control their own destiny if they can continue to win. So that's what makes this game very, very important. And then uh, then we'll worry about the next one after that when, when we go out to Arkansas, and that will be a tough one too with them coming off a, a devastating defeat this past weekend. So this is going to be a crazy month. Uh, and I count, obviously, this, this game here right before Halloween as part of the craziness of, of the last month or five weeks of the season. Florida, Georgia is always expect the unexpected to some degree. In the last two years, especially two years ago, I mean, that game almost stands alone as – you can't figure out how that result happened. And if we bring it to this year, it's almost the reverse of two years ago, where Florida's the team that comes in with a lot on the line, a heavy favorite, but yet you just don't know what you're going to get. And that's been really a big part of the last decade of this game is that you don't know what you're going to see. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's the traditional cliche that you can throw the records out because so many weird things have happened. And I think uh, if there's a commonality to it all, it's generally speaking, maybe this is true in most games, but certainly in this game, the team that can somehow survive and make the fewest mistakes usually wins. It's, it's you know, if you're going to turn the ball over four times, I'm not saying you can't win, but boy, it's not real. It not looks good if you make that many uh, turnovers in a game. So you've got to try and, and minimize those things. And uh, in, in terms of, of Florida, I, I'd like to see the Gators play a little cleaner in terms of penalties, and, and because all those things are so important, the lost yardage, the hidden yardage, the you know the, the penalties that take you out of drive or the stall drives or the, or the critical turnover. Uh, I mean, you know, the Gators had a, a very pedestrian type of an offensive game against Missouri, and all of a sudden they get back-to-back pick sixes there in the final three minutes of the second half and it turns into a kind of a blowout situation when it just elevated the whole team. So, you know, that, that's big. And, uh, you know, obviously the guy that Florida plays on Saturday and this kid, Jacob Eason, he, he is probably the, the future SEC quarterback of the year in this league at, at least once in his career, if not a couple of times. He's that good. Gators wanted him. Big, strong kid. And, uh, you know, obviously as a freshman, he's feeling his way through. He has some ups and downs. But uh, I think they have a lot of respect for what Eason can do. So uh, good matchup here. Give me the perspective from the broadcast booth. Is there anything you can compare it to, or is it just completely unique? Yeah, it's really unique. Uh, you know, it, it really does because when you are the home team, you really feel the home team because you have your crowd below you. Mm-hmm. And when you're the visiting team, you know, your, your fans are across the way. And so you really do feel like a visiting team. So 
then this year, uh, I believe we'll be the visiting team. So uh, it's a it's a different uh, perspective from that standpoint. But someone's always there's always energy and emotion and cheering in the game. And yet, uh, if my memory holds, I don't know that there's that many games that we've played in this series where it's still a game with five minutes to go. Many times the, the stadium has been clearing out in the fourth quarter. Fortunately for the Gators, they've cleared out Georgia more than Georgia's cleared <laughs> out Florida. But, I mean, there have been a few that have gone down to the end, uh, but most of them seem to be someone's trying to get a jump start on the traffic early. While linebacker Jared Davis's ankle has been the source of teeth gnashing for Gator fans since he left the field against Missouri, it's the defensive line that has most notably been battling injuries. Luckily for the Orange and Blue, the D-line is one of their deepest units, and younger players have jumped in action when their number's been called. Jeff Cardozo chatted with the man in charge of the unit and got the lay of the land from assistant coach Chris Rumpf. One of the things that you always love about this robbery is just coming across that bridge, man, and just see all those people in different colors, you know, blue and orange and the doggone black and the red, and, and it's just it's just the RVs, and it's just something special, man. You just can't get it out your mind. Do you recall thinking to yourself anything when you saw it for the first time last year? I was just blown away. I was like, wow, you know, I didn't expect that. You know, you hear guys tell you about it every year, how it's going to be, and I'm like, okay, yeah, and you say, well, I've been in this rivalry, been in this rivalry. It's a great, great, great atmosphere, and the city of uh, Jacksonville does a good job with the hospitality. It's been a really quirky couple of weeks for you guys with going all the way back to the LSU game and and figuring the things out with that, and now you get a a bye week and then another week and now another bye week, and sort of it's now the the middle part of the season. So how have you guys used these last couple of weeks to to get better and, and, and try to help yourselves? Well, especially for me, it's been an opportunity for some of my guys to get healthy, you know, get your legs back on and you get, you know, get rested. And also as a team, you know, get a chance to work on your fundamentals and your basic stuff that, you know, blocking and tackling and, and trying to be trying to get better each day. I know uh, early part of the season we had talked about some of these young guys and you know maybe they're going to eventually start to play, but because of some injuries and different things, these young guys have had to grow up in a hurry. Are you pleased with their progress? I am. You know, these guys, like you said, you know, wasn't expecting them to play a whole lot, and then all of a sudden, you know, we get the little injury bug, and now you got some guys in there that's playing, and you're depending on them to make some plays. And I'll tell you what, these guys are, have really stepped up, and I'm I'm proud of them. I'm happy for the things they've done, and I'm looking forward for what they're going to do. You, know, you guys do such a great job. Of- of looking at film and understanding stuff, have they been able to watch what they put on film and, and improve? Yes, definitely. You know, they they starting to, you know, the eyes are a little wider now when they're watching themselves play um, as many snaps and and now they're seeing some of the things that we've been talking about with the older guys all year. And now they really truly understand what I'm saying because they've had an opportunity to go out there and experience it for themselves. We've seen uh, now for about a year and a half how great your personality is, and uh, I think it translates down on the field and some of the things that are going on. But what are some of the personalities of, the, of these guys? It seems like you guys have a lot of fun at that spot. Yeah, we got a bag of tricks. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's got a lot of um, different personalities. You know, a bunch of serious guys, a bunch of funny guys, and, and I just tell them, say, man, just have fun and just you know, life's too short to be walking around with a frown on your face. So. You know, have fun. No one is trying to get serious. But, you know, at the end of the day, this thing is just a game. You know, it's just a game. So let's have fun with it, enjoy it, embrace it, and going out there with your homeboys and your buddies and competing and, and doing something that a lot of people wish they could do. Every week's a different test, and, and this one's a, a guy that I think everybody knows, a gunslinger, and Coach Max said last week that he could be the future of the SEC. So when, when you see a guy with a big arm like that, is there any certain way to try to get after him? 
you know, you just got to harass him. You know, you got to try to get him off his spot, um, get him uncomfortable in the pocket. Don't let him settle his feet in and make throws. And, you know, we have to change up the coverages and give him one thing, and you know, the rope dope you know, and, and just make him think and hold the ball on for one more second and hopefully we can get some hits on him. You guys have done a great job over the last couple of years in this series of running the football offensively, and it seems like the team that runs it the best is the one that, that comes out on top. And you, know, you look at them, and they've got Chubb and Michelle and, and a whole stable of backs back there. So it's going to be important to stop them too, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely. You know, that's one of the things that we took pride in practice this week of, you know, being tough and imposing our will on them and, you know, holding our gaps and being responsible and stopping the run. When you talk about uh, just filling gaps and, and the gap coverage, what, is, what does that mean? Well, you know, if I'm responsible for being in the A-gap, then I have to be in the A-gap. I can't get nosy and try to look into my neighbor's you know, back door. You get in trouble like that. So um, I got to hold my A-gap if I'm responsible for that, knowing that my friend is going to have the B-gap or C-gap and so forth. So it just comes down to responsibility. I know uh, you guys don't like to look at it, and heck, I didn't look at it back when I was playing. You guys are the, the number one defense in the SEC. Do you think these guys are aware of that, or is just go out and play? I think they are aware of it, and we, we, we let them know, hey, you are the number one defense in the conference, so act like it, you know, and, and play like it. You guys have held four different teams now to under 125 passing yards. It's, it's, something like, it's unheard of, and one of only two teams in the country to do that. Is that something you smile upon? Oh, definitely. You know, we, we got some guys back there on the back end that can cover now, and they make it easy for us up front because the quarterback now has to hold the ball, you know, extra second or two, and that gives us another opportunity to get a hit on them or even sack them every once in a while. It's no secret that the Gators are dealing with some key ailments as they head to Jacksonville, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. The question of who will and won't play is a key storyline going into a game that is certainly never short on drama. And that topic was the jumping off point for our latest roundtable discussion with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Well, it sounds like the defensive line, which has really been beaten up before the uh, bye week, uh, you know, they're still going to be evaluated this week. Listen to Coach McElwain yesterday. He didn't give a lot. Basically, some guys were running around on Sunday and uh, got back out there and getting in the swing of things. You got uh, – what, Joey Ivey, Caleb Brantley with the hand, I think he's all right. Sure. The other guy, Jordan Sher mm-hmm. with the knee. So getting those three guys healthy, that's imperative. You know, with this Georgia running game, you know, you got Sony yeah. Michelle, then Nick Chubb. So, I mean, you know that the defensive line is going to need to be effective to stop the Georgia run game. So getting those guys back. And, of course, the big one that everybody wants to know about is Jared Davis. Uh, severely sprained his ankle against Missouri. Uh, it still sounds like he's just going to be testing it all week, still getting a lot of rehab. It's a day-to-day thing. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing at this point we might not know until Saturday afternoon at 3.30 when the kickoff happens if Jared Davis runs out on the field. So, you know, obviously the Gators want him to be there. And I'm sure knowing Jared Davis, he is doing everything he can to get back. Some of his teammates talked about it yesterday. Chris. My guess is he's if he's 70%, he's going to try to <laughs> yeah, go. The yeah. kid's from Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, Scott. Yep. Yes, yep. this game is going to mean everything to him. He's a senior. He's a leading tackler on the team. Everyone looks up to him in the locker room. And this is going to be very, very meaningful for that kid. And then I imagine he'll do everything in his power to get on the field. When, and now is it meaningful for him, but it's meaningful for this defense. I think we've talked all year about that position, knowing how good Florida was at the top. 
but how little depth there was behind those stars. So Anzalone and Davis, they've been there all year. They've avoided injury up until this point. So what do they do if Jared Davis is not available on Saturday? Well, you're just going to rely on uh, young guys like they uh, did after the – you know, the Missouri game was kind of out of reach when he went down. Mm -hmm. So you saw a lot more David Reese, a a true freshman who, uh, you know, when he came in here, a lot of people – kind of compared him physically a little bit of a grinder, just a hard-nosed guy, to uh, Antonio Morrison, who was a very good player here the last four years. So, you know, I think they like David Reese. I think they uh, they trust him. But obviously, you, you lose a lot more than just a good football player in Jared Davis. You know, whether it's Jalen Tabor, Quincy Wilson, both of those guys after the Missouri game mentioned, hey, that's the heart and soul of our defense. When we saw him have to leave the, the field, on, you know, with the help of the trainers, Man, that, that was kind of surreal, Tabor said, because that's just something you don't expect to see mm-hmm. because he is so tough and he is such a, a heartbeat of that defense. So, you know, having him there. But if he's not there, obviously, I think David Reese is the one guy you look at. And as long as Anzalone's out there, I think Alex Anzalone, he, he, to me, he's right now the most improved player on this football team. I mean, we'd heard about that potential, but he's certainly delivering this year. He's already blown away his career highs and tackles and all those stats. And uh, the upside on this guy is real. And, you know, he's staying healthy, which is a big thing. I'll make the point that uh, after Jared Davis left that game, I believe uh, Missouri had 160 yards in the fourth quarter alone. Now, a lot of that was was with a lot of substitutes. And mm-hmm. Jim Mackelson had some scout players on the, on the field in the last yeah. couple drives. But that's when Missouri made its hay. And certainly uh, Georgia, a uh, physical team, running team, that's what they're going to want to do. Obviously, uh, uh, Eason is, is a very capable passer. Um, but you need, you need to have Jared Davis's game. It's funny you mentioned injuries. Here's one that people aren't really talking about that I want to know a little bit more about, see a little bit. It's Luke Del Rio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke Del Rio came back from that uh, knee injury in the last game. To his credit, he said none of his struggles in, the, in that three-interception performance against Missouri had to do with injury. Now, the, and that's what a football player says. Whether it's true or not, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. But he he's he will have had the bye week to get sharper, uh, work on his technique more. Um, I think, you know, he, even he said his footwork wasn't very good in that game. So he's had that time to improve. So that's a positive. That's two weeks without having to absorb any hits like he had to have in that game. So, you know, another couple weeks, uh, 14 days for him to, uh, you know, get his sea legs under him, as it were, against Georgia uh, should, should be helpful for him. When if you look big picture, too, it's almost unprecedented in the middle of the season to play essentially one game in three and a half weeks. But because the LSU situation yeah. and then the bye, you, played, you had the Vanderbilt game on October 1st, and there's been one game since then going into the last weekend of October. Right. So I think that there is a sharpness question that comes into play, and, and you mentioned it with Del Rio. This is kind of that point where – it's the back half of the season. It's a sprinting out of the finish, and Florida still has every opportunity at this point to even compete for a spot in the playoff, but they've got to turn that corner starting on Saturday. Yeah, I look at Saturday against Georgia, very similar situation as it, you know, when they took on Missouri. You know, you had Del Rio coming back for the injury. You had that unexpected layoff with Hurricane Matthew blowing through, so they had some extra time, and again, a two-week break now with Georgia coming up. The good thing is with Del Rio, we'll start with him, is He's had time to get his footwork back uh, under him, which is what he focused on a lot last week. And uh, they said basically what they saw on film from the Missouri game, some of his uh, missed throws or overthrows, interceptions, he just was off with his footwork. And it makes sense because when you suffer a knee injury, you're probably going to shift some things around, maybe protecting that knee at first. So uh, for a quarterback, footwork is huge. So I think that was one of the big areas. And, 
you know, this team does still, it's got these four consecutive SEC games here. The only one at home is against South Carolina. And, you know, you got to go to Arkansas after Georgia, and then you play at LSU. So we've said this all along. Florida is in great shape to uh, defend its title in these, but, boy, they're going to have to earn it because that's a tough road for really the month of November. And it starts with a strange game, right? Florida-Georgia, inevitably the last few years, has been bizarre. You've had everyone's <laughs> yes. had an expectation of what we're going to see, and then it turns out to be something completely different. And, and I think maybe Florida should be wary of that because if you look at the recent trend, the team that's gone in as the favorite has tended to struggle. You say recent trend. I say it's a trend for the last you know, freaking 60 years with the series. When, 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 you, know, yeah. when, you know, think how many times Florida went in that with so much to play for mm-hmm. and seemingly the favorite and Vince Dooley would pump them all up and then, you know, Gators leave the stadium heartbroken. Um, two years ago, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, th- I think I'm in the ball yard here. Georgia goes to Missouri and wins 30 to nothing. 34 okay. nothing. 34 nothing or something like that. Then Missouri comes to Florida like a week later or two weeks later and just dismantles the Gators on the scoreboard with seven first downs and 112 yards of offense. I think his final score was 42 to 13. It was a uh, right? forgettable so, night. <laughs> it was a forgettable n- where they had four returns for touchdowns. A week later, it's Georgia and Florida, and you know, it's the, why even play the game? Georgia's right. going to kill them. Uh, They're ranked ninth in the country. Not, right. and, and don't forget the, the heat on Muschamp at that point. Everyone Absol- knew Muschamp yeah, had to yeah, win yeah, out. And here he is playing against his own. I mean, the storylines are out there. Sure. Everything's against Florida. 290-yard rushers. Treon Harris throws six passes. And just Gators just destroy them. With that's why rivalry games are that's, great. That's, 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 that's <laughs> exactly. And this game, looks, this game has that kind of thing. That's why McWayne, I think, this is how you get your players' attention. By pointing Georgia's last time out, you know, they're seething over that loss, homecoming loss to Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. okay, where they outgained them 421 yards to 171 and still lost the game because they're kicking field goals instead of scoring touchdowns. Um, you know, they kind of they, they never took luck out of the equation. Vanderbilt ends up making plays of the game to win the game. So this is all set up. Uh, uh, Georgia is out of the SEC running, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had high hopes this year. Now this is about for the future and grooming this quarterback, Jacob Eason, who's going to be really, really good. He's had his struggles, but he's obviously made some big plays like the one in the Tennessee game but this is a setup game where Georgia can have the last laugh hey you know we did this to you you did it to us a couple years ago have fun with that the other point of this too and and you brought it up Chris is the Georgia unpredictability right what are you going to get from a freshman quarterback playing in this game for the first time what do you get from a first year head coach competing in this game for the first time that's been a vulnerability for Georgia both of those number of their games this year how does Florida prepare for that is there anything you can do to prepare for what might go wrong on the other side well <laughs> when it comes to first career starts by a freshman I just go back to that game two years ago Treon Harris's first career start Georgia right mm-hmm. no that game is the strangest yeah, that's what I'm game saying, of it just shows time. you how weird this series <laughs> is he threw six passes yeah Gators won going away. Now, I can tell you right now, Jacob Beeson is going to throw a lot more than six passes (laughs) on uh, Saturday against this Florida defense. You know, Jacob Beeson, obviously, Gator fans are very familiar with him. It came down to basically Florida and Georgia. He chose Georgia. Jim McElwain yesterday called him the future of the SEC. He thinks he's that good of a a quarterback. And so far, nothing we've seen dispels that. I mean, the guy has an unbelievable arm. You saw that touchdown pass against Tennessee that looked like Ten seconds left was going to win them the game. Then uh, Tennessee comes back with the Hail Mary and spoil it. And really, Georgia hasn't been the same since. But you look at Jacob Eason, he's just a big, strong-arm kid. Uh, obviously has confidence. The team seems to – the offense at least seems to really uh, rally around that guy. He's going to be a force to uh, stop for the Gators. It's going to be interesting to see that passing offense of Georgia 
against Florida's secondary. We saw how good it is against Missouri, obviously, with Tabor and Wilson. We saw Florida's passing game struggle up at Vanderbilt. Um, I'm looking at what uh, Eason was able to do against Vanderbilt, 27 of 40, 346 yards. I mean, it's a good Vanderbilt defense. Now, having said that, a week earlier, looking at his stats against South Carolina, middling defense. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're okay, but, you know, certainly nothing spectacular. He's 5 of 17 for 29 yards. So, <laughs> I mean, so what are you going to get from him? This will probably be the best defense he faces to date. I imagine he's going to get a lot of looks. He's going to get a lot of pressure on him. And uh, if I'm Florida, I mean, I'm, I'm sending a lot at him and leaving those cornerbacks on an island because, we, we, you know, we know what they can do. Mm-hmm. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to get our latest episodes the second they're released. And feel free to provide feedback by tweeting us at Gators Podcast or by emailing GatorsPodcast at gmail.com. Florida looks to make it three in a row on Saturday at 3.30 against Georgia, and you can watch live on CBS or listen on the Gator IMG Sports Network. So until next time, I'm Adam Schick. And I'll see you in Jacksonville.